mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russ Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling like Mona. (laughs) And I don't mean like moaning, because I know I do moan a lot. I am a bit of a nag, aren't I? Yes. An old nag. As, as a best friend to yeah, you. Nightmare. Um, I'm actually talking about the wonderful, the one and only Mona Lisa. Oh. And I've been thinking a lot about Mona Lisa while researching today's guest, which some listeners might not actually necessarily associate with him because he is primarily known, at least in the 90s when we were growing up, he is like the greatest filmmaker ever pretty much and has really told LGBT stories through cinema for a really long time and made some extraordinary movies all the way from his debut Malanoche through to the iconic drugstore cowboy and the similarly acclaimed My Own Private Idaho. Milk, Goodwill Hunting. Also recently you've actually collaborated with each other for the Ryan Murphy production directed by today's guest of Capote. The New Feud, which is coming out. And I'm talking about Mona Lisa because Mona Lisa is obviously the ubiquitous cultural icon from the Florentine period and is a Renaissance masterpiece. And today's guest deconstructed that work and made me see it in a completely different way, in a really abstract kind of colour way, in an exhibition from a few years ago. And alongside his filmmaking, he's a prolific photographer and artist. And we are so excited to reveal that kind of part of his, his life, which is an integral part of his life. And also his connections to people like Derek Jarman, who I know both of us are totally obsessed with. So it'll be really exciting to meet him today. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art all the way from Los Angeles, Gus Van Sand. Hey, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good. It's uh, 8 a.m. in the morning there, isn't it, Gus? Yes. I have a new little dog, so they all get up. How old is the dog? He's 11 weeks. Oh, so is he pooping and seeing everywhere at the minute? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or not. You know, he's learning fast. That's good. So we find you in Los Angeles at 8 a.m. And uh, as Rob said in the intro, you are, everybody knows who you are, Gus. You are like uh, <laughs> the legend. But most people might not realize that painting and photography have also been an incredible medium in your life and something that actually you, you were attacking, approaching first from a very young age. Yeah, I think I considered myself at 14 years old a painter. I had an art teacher who was inspiring, and we'd do all kinds of things like silk screening, and he painted 
in acrylics, which I learned how to do. And it kind of led me into filmmaking in the sense that I lived outside of New York City in Connecticut at the time. And the painters in New York were all making films. And I got a hold of a book that was about experimental cinema. And I would go see sometimes at the Museum of Modern Art or Anthology Film Archives. I would see some of these works and most of the people were, were painters. Like, like who? Who, who were these artists at the time doing um, that? Like Stan Brackage was one of the main ones. Warhol eventually, he was kind of going into that scene, but as a painter. Ron Rice was one, Stan Vanderbeek. He had a videodrome or a film sort of sphere that he made, which was like an installation of sorts, but, but he was a painter. They were all pretty much coming from paintings. And Derek Jarman, you mentioned him. I mean, he's originally a painter or an art director for Ken Russell. But I, th I think I think of him as a painter as well. Yeah. And he continued to do art as he was doing um, his films. Well, that feels like what your practice has been throughout your career. You've been making film, but then you've been making art alongside it. Yeah, I just continued to dabble in, in art. I want to go back to your high school teacher then, because we actually spoke about this. We, uh, we went on a field trip to the Whitney together, which was joyous. And you spoke about your kind of a role model and a, and a real inspiration that came to you in the uh, 1960s when you was at school. He was openly gay, this teacher. And for you at that age, he was inspiring you into art, but also as for your identity, I guess, to show that actually he could be a role model. This could be something that you could do. Yeah, he was, I think, the first out gay person that I knew. We were in his class, we were quite young, like 11 years old. And he was very strict and very funny and very kind of out there. And he would share with us his life, you know, outside of school. He would go into the city on the weekends and he would show us the village voice and he would show us the personals in the back of the village voice <laughs> of men like wishing each other um, happy birthdays and so forth and sending messages. There was sort of a message board in the back of the village voice. Yeah. And it was sort of showing us this gay life, which at 11, you know, you didn't really get it. It was the same as heterosexual <laughs> life. I mean, but what an incredible kind of gift for him to have come along and just shown you this really wholesome side of what it was to be gay, you know, and showed you this these connections that men can have with each other that are really kind of loving and generous right for sure and i also read then so at 16 so this is quite a young age you, you you were like growing up through school and then at 16 you actually opened your own art gallery to sell your yeah. art your friends art, and your teachers art yeah he we had some of his paintings i don't think we sold one painting though i think we were open <laughs> for six months we weren't very good at bringing the people into the space we had the space and people would wander in off the streets but i think we needed to have more parties or events. So how did that come together? Like at 16, how did you know to have the wherewithal to like open your own gallery space? And it was a friend of mine and I together, we just, for some reason, decided to have this space. His mother was a painter too. So I think we must have had um, some of her pieces in there. I think it was just a, a business venture of sorts. But then as with a lot of galleries, um, I read about the Ferris Gallery in LA somebody has to sit in the gallery all day. So we would take turns and I was usually in the back kind of like working on my film project. 
and occasionally somebody would walk in off the street. But not buy anything, so it was a big flop. And generally, I really don't remember actually making a sale, which is kind of crazy. And I'm sure somebody, like one of our parents, bought a piece of art, <laughs> you know, but it wasn't like an uh, outside customer. Do you think that taught you a lot, like doing that at that age? Yeah, I mean, it taught me a lot about myself, that I'm, I'm not a commercial, like, negotiator. <laughs> 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 and what what was it at that age as well that spoke to you so much about painting? You know, saying you're a painter at the age of 14. Well, I mean, I, I was at 11. He was inspiring us to paint. So it was like three years later, I was actually making paintings, emulating him in some ways. And there was one painting that I uh, entered in the local art show that won first prize. So I'll, because of that prize, I think I thought, well, I'm now a painter. <laughs> You're a recognized painter, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what I was doing all, with all my time, was painting. Do you think if he hadn't come along, your life might have been very different? Without that particular teacher? Yeah. Um, probably, yeah. There were two teachers. Um, so there was Robert Levine was my teacher's name. And there was an English professor named David Sohn, who was like a very experimental teacher. And he uh, wrote a book called Stop, Look and Write which we used in class, you would look at a photograph and write a story that's inspired by the photograph. He would show us films, he would show us experimental films in our in English class. He, would, he also showed us Citizen Kane in that class. This is when I was 14. And um, Levine, the art teacher, was somewhat jealous because we would talk about David's class and the, the cool art films that he showed. And he said, well, you know, those aren't English <laughs> class. That's those are artists. And so he was sort of um, maybe jealous that we were inspired by somebody else as well. But in that class, other students, I didn't do this, but some other students bought cameras and started making films. And I made an animated film with one of those students that he had the camera. And uh, at 16, I made this animation. Well, it sounds like a really arty school so this was in connecticut right it was not an arty school we were just sort of the select few artists i think most of the programs concerned like sports than the arts programs but it was an experimental in the sense that it was a kind of very upper middle class community and i think some of the teachers were doing it as a almost a hobby they weren't like um career teachers, they had other things that they did. Like Levine was an artist and David Sohn was um, a kind of conceptual like teacher. So yeah, those two guys were, I was lucky to have them. Then elsewhere, you know, we had pretty traditional classes. And your grandmother was an artist growing up. My grandmother did paint, but I don't really remember being completely influenced by her. He didn't try and sell her work, no? <laughs> no, I don't think there was work to sell. <laughs> what artists at that age were you actually looking at? Um, do you remember, because me personally, like I remember when I was 13, I got obsessed with Frida Kahlo and it literally changed my life. Were there artists that you discovered in those formative years that, that kind of had a big impact? Yeah, I mean, any, I mean, we were in the you know New York area. So anyone that was at that time in the early 60s, so pop art was becoming one of the main movements. I think I was influenced by more like just art I would see in magazines, you know, more than like in galleries, because we had like a, some local galleries, but they were very small. And so unless unless we were going in to see 
the big museums, which occasionally we did, I was sort of more influenced by things that were going on in the local community. A lot of the parents worked in advertising, and a lot of the parents were, um, you know, journalists. It was uh, David Marshman's dad had co-written um, Sunset Boulevard. So there were some film influences, too. But I think most of the things that I was, information I was getting was just from the media, like television or magazines. So I guess that's why you connected to Andy Warhol in the fact that he was... I mean, it was, uh, Warhol came very late for me. I, w I think it was 16 or 17 when I really sort of realized his work mm -hmm. or who he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, Rob mentioned Mona Lisa in, in the intro and Mona Lisa is uh, been a body of work that you've really... Uh, delved into for many years now you've sort of been in and out of Mona Lisa but th this was a real kind of moment for you when you was 11 where you got to see it but it was actually an underwhelming experience <laughs> when you first witnessed it uh, yeah and that was my grandmother brought me into the city I think it was in 1963 mm. so I would have been uh, 11 and we went in it was at the Metropolitan Museum and uh, it was a huge huge line outside it was freezing cold and you waited for like an hour and a half to kind of file by the painting. And I, I suppose we went to the rest of the museum as well. But um, but the painting was quite small to be seen by like, you know, maybe 50 people at a time. And this was, this was a touring show of Leonardo da Vinci or this was? The Mona Lisa had come to New York City. So it was like an event, like the Mona Lisa visits New York. And we went in to see that. But you thought it was just like, whatever. It didn't mean anything at the time. But then looking back now, <laughs> it it's become such small. a big, yeah. I was pretty far away from it. And it took so long to actually see it. And then we were pushed, pushed along, you know, like after viewing it. So considering it was so like underwhelming, it sounds like standing in the queue was probably more entertaining. Um, what was it about that image that you sort of wanted to focus on? Or is it more like what that image represents? I mean, the Mona Lisa's that I've made now which are partly um digital optical like illusion of the mona lisa being perforated by colored squares photographically so you're looking at colored squares but if you step back you see the mona lisa i was using that as an image because of i think it's ubiquitousness you know just its prevalence and its notoriety as the the most famous painting ever as just a subject you know it was more uh, an, an excuse to put paint on a canvas than it was the value of the of the image of the mona lisa mm. um it was it just became the subject of these and i did some other ones as well i did some other paintings i made um a van gogh starry night and some other like images that i i had taken on my own but then the Mona Lisa became kind of like a fixation. And I made a show. I mean, basically, I made a show that appeared in Switzerland uh, through Vito Schnabel Galleries. It was during a COVID Christmas. <laughs> Nobody went to Switzerland that year. It's interesting to me, this idea of like a universal image. And, you know, you mentioned Van Gogh as well. There's something that everyone can understand in every country they're in pretty much because those those images really have traveled. Is there something about that as, an, as a language? Because if you think of like Marilyn Monroe as well, like with Warhol, I guess, like how, how those particular images just 
have their own language that doesn't even need words? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a connection there with its notoriety and and fame. From what I could gather reading about the Mona Lisa, its fame partly came at a time when journalism was sort of taking a turn in 1911, I think. And there was such a thing as like an international like news story because of the mm-hmm. ways that the newspapers were kind of coordinating by then and the telephone was changing the way people communicated so that there was this more cohesive like international communication and at that time the Mona Lisa had been stolen from the Louvre and it was this big story internationally one of the earliest like international stories I didn't know that well there was an art heist of Mona Lisa yeah and because that was the story it became an identifiable like work of art through this theft you know um which is partly why we have the Mona Lisa today um as one of the most famous paintings that's crazy i didn't know that either so that's built the myth i didn't know that either so who stole it had they do you know do you know the narrative I'm surprised they haven't made a film of it <laughs> i think for a while they thought picasso stole it but it turned out, I think it was somebody that worked at the museum. That's wild. I mean, yeah, that definitely feeds into the myth of Mona Lisa. Then if it's gone missing and comes back, it gives it that sort of weight. And it was printed in, in the papers, you know, so the picture of the Mona Lisa printed internationally became like, and that it was desirous enough to be stolen and that it was such a big loss for the museum. So it was already well known, but it became even more well-known. And the materials you used when you made that body of work, I heard that you limited it to a certain palette, if you like, including kind of very shiny, you know, leaf, like gold, silver. Yeah, some of them are um, gold, like this one in back of me. Wow. I mean, I think originally they were oil and watercolour. Here, I'll get one for you. So we were just looking, Gus just showed us... um, like i don't know what is that meter and a half by meter canvas with gold leaf panels uh laid over it um that's behind where he sat so we'll have to ask him about living with his own art <laughs> it's a good one to live with <laughs> yeah oh yeah so here's okay. like a typical one is that crayon that's crayon yeah so what we're looking at for for the audience it looks like a computer graphic or pixelated version of mona lisa and they're all isolated and divided hues in little squares yeah. So you are making these, you're painting these by hand. You're not using any computer skills for this. This is all you kind of making grids. No, there is a computer image already that's dividing up the colors. So I'm just following the the code. And how many of these have you made? I think think I've made um, maybe, I don't know, 30, something like that. And is that the end of this body of work or is the Mona Lisa going to be something that you're going to be exploring? I think that's the end. This is the pup as well. Oh, look. Oh, hello. Baby doggy. Here's my dog. (laughs) He actually sees screens, can see you guys. What does he think of the Mona Lisa? What does he think of um, (laughs) I don't think he knows. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) He doesn't know that. What's it it like living with your own work then, if you've got one behind you there? Um, It's just where I'm storing it. You know, it's like the... Art starts to become like um, a storage problem. Yeah, expensive problem. I mean, what, what do you feel like they're making art? You've made 30 million leases, and then we can talk about other bodies of work, but making art on a commercial level, you know, you try to sell your own art at 16, but now you have got a gallery and you are selling art. What do you feel like that people are, you know, watching your films and then buying paintings by you? 
Um, I don't think that it really is something that goes together very well. I mean, I think that um, as a filmmaker, I'm less likely to be selling a painting because people want to buy a painting that's by a painter, not by a filmmaker. I mean, it happens with a lot of other filmmakers that paint, like David Lynch. There's a cinematographer that I know who is very, very established still photographer, and he complains about the same thing because he's known as a cinematographer and not a still photographer. Is that frustrating for you? I guess so. I I sort of am doing it as a hobby in a way, so um, there's only a certain amount of frustration. Not the type of frustration that you might have if you were like trying to break into the art world as an artist, which, of course, there's much frustration to be found in the art world, you know, by unaccepted artists, which I'm sure you guys meet all the time. Yeah, there's only a certain amount of that kind of frustration. And if you think about expressing yourself um, through different mediums, do you feel like you have a kind of inner calling to like, I don't know, make a painting or make a photograph or, or when you make paintings, are you doing them more in series like the Mona one or is it something you just constantly do? Um, it's something that I tend to do already, but the Mona Lisa paintings were, were made as a series, you know, to try to, to get something going that like um, wasn't just different each time. The other ones that you guys have seen are the barn crashing into the roads. Yeah, these for me, these watercolors, are these they're very loose watercolors, these these barn ones, but then you have a whole series which is called Hollywood, like recent paintings, Hollywood Boulevard. And these for me feel so kind of alive and exciting. And, and yeah, we, we connected the other day about these barn paintings, but let, let, let's talk about those then. I mean, that was an image that I was painting in school, in art school. So I went to Rhode Island School of Design, which was an, really an art school, not a film school. And pretty much everyone in the painting departments were trying to get out of the painting departments because it was 19, early 70s. And the painting world was kind of overflowing with aspiring artists. And there was so many other things to do, you know, like the talking heads were there. They did pop music <laughs> instead of art. <laughs> um, there were other, you know, like, uh, people that were painters that became photographers or graphic artists or fashion designers, you know, or sculptors. A lot of people were, would switch around their majors, but many people went there because they were painters first. But didn't did you get told that like, only 10% of the students would leave and have a career in the arts? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the common figure was that like in, say, 20 years, only 10% of the students would continued to be making art and that was quite a scary concept then if you're there at RISD yeah, going I'm yeah. going to be an artist it, and they go well no only 10% of you will yeah and I think as a result of the 60s and you know I think just the aesthetic of the 60s that you could be whatever you wanted you didn't need to have a name you know you could be making I don't know um, textiles and that could be your art or you could be making sandwiches there was a sandwich shop called Joe's at RISD, it was quite artistic, as in their in the making of the sandwiches. <laughs> really, no way. It's like whatever you did could be your art. It wouldn't have to be a painting. So, someone advised you at that point that you should probably bid farewell to traditional painting. No, it wasn't. It was just in the air. Okay. Nobody advised me, or we weren't advising each other. I think it was just what was going on at post sixties. So the sixties had happened. This is nineteen seventy two, seventy three, seventy four. 
And just we were surrounded by postgraduates that were working in sandwich shops or working in clubs or working in as postmen or whatever that had gone to the school. And they were making their lives their art as RISD students. Martin Mull, I don't know if you know his, he's a painter, mm -hmm. but he's also a comedian. And at the time he had a TV show called Fernwood Tonight. And he was part comedian, part jazz musician. And he, he actually played shows, um, went on tour and played shows, part writer, part conceptual artist and part painter. And um, he was kind of the figurehead of, of that period or one of the figureheads from RISD. So you went on and found film, but what I've read up, up a lot, which I find really fascinating, is you, you wanted to treat film like a canvas. So you were approaching film from a painterly position. Yeah, originally I was like drawing on film and I was scratching film and I was like using film as a as a medium for like a visual aesthetic. And then I think that at RISD, I thought, what if you tried to actually make something that you would see in the cinema or, you know, how does Lawrence of Arabia relate to like what you're doing? Like, can you go through that window, you know, into this other place? So I sort of made that my directive rather than, you know, a visual art side. So if you think of a film like My Own Private Idaho, in that film, it, it's incredibly artistic. You know, like I remember when I first saw it when I was probably a teenager and it had such an impact on mm. me on a kind of um, atmospheric level. And I know in the depths of the internet, there's even like people obsessing over the jacket River Phoenix wore and why it was that jacket and the history of that jacket <laughs> and the, the tone of it. It's almost like gradation of color or something in red, but already pink. Um, but also there's a barn, no? In that film. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. You were drawing that as a kid. <laughs> crashing barn. Yeah. There's a crashing barn. Yeah, that's because um, in, in Drugstore Cowboy and also My Own Private Idaho, there were sequences that were fantasy sequences. And so I was relying on the singular image that I had in my paintings as like a reference, you know, just because it was the most direct reference that I had was this floating barn or a crashing barn or in Drugstore Cowboy, there's like sort of a floating house that goes by. So I was kind of relying on those visual images for those visual interludes in those films. But I think Idaho was, I was definitely, having made Drugstore Cowboy, I was like just veering off into an experimental idea. And the script itself was quite strange looking that, would turn off producers. Even though Drugstore Cowboy was doing quite well artistically, you know, I had people asking to see my screenplay for the next film and I would give them my own private Idaho and just the look of the script because you're, it wasn't in courier type and it wasn't 118 pages. It was 70 pages and it had like different size type. And sketches as well, right? You'd sketched all through it. Um, no, I don't think there were sketches, but there was an Ogden Nash sort of quality or E.E. E. Cummings' quality to the way that I was writing it. And um, it just didn't look like a script. So it was rejected pretty much out of hand, you know, as soon as I'd given it to anyone. And the thing that brought it back into the commercial area were just the actors that wanted to be in it, um, River and Keanu, like sort of brought it back. So then they all of a sudden didn't care about the script and they cared about the movie. But it was written completely with many different influences from like, Samuel Beckett, to George Eliot, to Tristram Shandy, to um, 
things that were going on in my life at the time, just all mixed together. If you think of that motif of the barn, for me, like as a kid, I obviously watched Wizard of Oz and I always think as an English person, you know, we we didn't grow up with barns unless you grew up on a farm, say, which I did yeah. kind of see, but I didn't really. And for me in Hollywood anyway, that's what I think of. But for you, where would that image, is there a route to it? Yeah, I think that the house, the flying house in the Wizard of Oz is probably one of the inspirations because I would have seen that like at five years old or six years old, seven years old. Yeah. Because they used to play it every year, I think it. Thanksgiving in the U.S., you know, and, and you would see it every year, yeah. and it crashed, and it landed on somebody. Um, the witch, the, the witch, yeah. um, and it's sort of the the gay icon in our world. Yeah. And uh, I think that was all an influence, but also I think driving. I drove across the country quite a bit. It was cheaper to drive across than it was to take a plane, and then you would also have like your car would to drive around. So I would drive to L.A. and to Oregon and to New York over and over again. And on the way, you would see dilapidated barns that looked like they had crashed into the land because of one side of it would have collapsed and the other side would be sticking up. So it was a very common sight in like North and South Dakota to see these barns that looked like they had crashed. I, I love it on a psychological level. Like there's some kind of like ominous presence there like a psychological kind of it's like mm. almost like what is it to be human <laughs> i think the first one that i painted it was after school and i was living in hollywood and uh it was on paper and it was a crashing house it was like a red roofed white house that was looked like the the house that i grew up in in colorado before my family moved which was kind of i think at six years old being told that you're going to move was sort of an abstract concept, like where were you going to go? And there was going to be another town that you were going to live in. And it was kind of a, a shock. So I think that it represented like no more house, no more home. These watercolors then, there are a series of them. We were messaging each other the other day because I was very lucky and fortunate to go to Derek Jarman's Prospect Cottage in Dungeness. And I was wandering around and then suddenly there's a watercolor by you hanging up in the hall and I would say I said to the guy there I said that's Gus Van Sant's walk on he said yeah I said how how is that here and he was like we don't actually know and I went I'm gonna ask him he was like what I said I'm gonna text Gus and then I'd love to hear this story about how you connected Derek Jarman and also the generosity of of art how you are someone that gives gifts to people and and this whole series has been something that you've gifted to lots of lots of people along the way yeah I mean it was something that I had made a number of times and uh and sometimes I, I would give them as gifts. And I met Derek. I mean, I think the first moment I knew Derek because of some of his works. I guess the, the original punk rock film that he made. Jubilee. Jubilee. I think that had been released. Maybe I had seen that. But he was at, at Berlin Film Festival, which was my first film festival with a film I made called Malanoche. And it was kind of like there was a section of the festival, the panorama section, there was quite gay, um, a lot of different gay entries. And the city had a historic gay underground. And Derek had come with Caravaggio, which was, I think, more in the main competition. And it was a British Film Institute production. And so he had a lot, a, a huge entourage around him. They threw a party for it. And it was, it was kind of like a big show. And um, I was staying with one of the festival organizers, this quite attractive blonde guy who worked at the festival every year forgetting his name christopher i think 
course. Yeah. And I came home one night and uh, Christopher was in bed with Derek Garman. <gasps> oh my God. And they had like um, these candles and dildos all around the edge of the bed. So it was sort of a sunken bed. And I walked in and said, oh. It wasn't your bed, was it? But they weren't in your bed. <laughs> no, right. no, I was in a different okay. room. And I was like, oh, hello. Um, and they were like, how are you doing? And they were just sort of lounging in the bed naked. And I said, I'm fine. And and like, Gus, this is Derek. And, you know, like introductions. Retired to my room and let them like do what they were doing. And um, the next morning, uh, Derek, he called a taxi and gave me a ride to the festival. And we chatted and just got to know each other a little bit. And um, he was just very loquacious, I guess, good mm -hmm. word for it. Just a great person. And he he knew of the film that I had made and he was sort of like took responsibility, you know, like sort of a young gay filmmaker and as an elder gay filmmaker in an interesting way, just an inspiring way. And then I just had kept in touch with him just, you know, in the ensuing years. And so whenever I was in England, I would visit with him. At one point he wanted to use Matt Dillon's heartbeat in the movie Blue that he made which he explained as like it was just going to be this eve klein blue only and it was going to be like sound experience and he really wanted to use matt dylan's heartbeat and matt and i were on a publicity tour for drugstore cowboy at one point and we had a little gathering with derek and derek asked the question you know can i use your heartbeat in this project and matt was sort of sketched out he was like i'm not sure i don't, I don't sounds strange so he didn't do oh, it oh no i don't know if there is a heartbeat in the movie blue i think there probably is you know you know i've just performed that you know i've just took that round to four venues and performed it live and we read all the parts oh, really is there a heartbeat well simon fisher turner who did the original music was improvising every night so in the original film there is a point where they're oh wow. he's in the hospital there is a heartbeat but so he did simon did your yeah, yeah. it was called blue now so it was yeah, the it was idea amazing. that it's kind of updated to the present moment to kind of show how timeless that work is as well and how urgent it is. Yeah, he's a huge inspiration, Simon. Oh, really? I've never met him, but just really he's great. Oh, you should meet him. Because he, he he's got this photos that uh, Warhol took of him, um, which he, in this one with like Fran Leibovich, and he's in the background, and he asked me like to try and track it down. So I've got someone trying to track them down for him. But he was part of that, you know, where he is he's part of that gang yeah it worked with bowie yeah hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Yeah, yeah. So then, but then how did Derek get this painting? And who else have you given these watercolors to? Well, 
I think because we just were in touch, there was a moment, maybe even when he was sick, you know, in, in the hospital, mm. that it probably was. I think at one point he was in the hospital. I visited him in the hospital. And um, I visited him in his flat, which was like a famous apartment building where lots of different people had lived. But I, I only visited him him there. In Phoenix House on Charing Cross Road. Was it there? Is that where it is? Yeah. It's just like a, a one-bedroom kind of flat. Yeah. So probably I just sent it to him as a gift, you know, like... Um, Did you know it was hanging up in his house? I had heard that it, there was a painting hanging in his house. I didn't know until you sent me that. Um, I had an, another image in my head, but you sent it the real one. That's incredible. And then and then you gave, you gave another one to one of the stars of my own private Idaho. Yeah, River. I, I think I probably gave one to River and Keanu, and I just would give them to the actors in, in a lot of the films. Now, this project, I'd given a couple of um, gifts to Naomi and Tom as um, there were storyboards of their scenes. I have to get you one. I'd love that. Yeah, so well, this project we're talking about, that's uh, Tom Hollander and Naomi Watts, and this is Capote and his swans that we've just been working on. That's how we connected. And within that, obviously, there is it's something you're interested in is this marginalisation and same-sex love and desire. That's something you're drawn to, and you really felt that with Truman Capote, right? That's why you felt like you could connect to this project. And it's a TV show, and this is the first time you've made a TV show, right? Um, no, this is the third time I've done a series. One was When We Rise, which was a um, Lance Black show on ABC. Then there was a, another like actual running series called Boss oh, yeah. with Kelsey Grammer. I was familiar with either a TV show or a series show. But it was, yeah, the Capote idea and then Ryan Murphy himself, like the stuff that he had made. And then Robbie Bates I had met and Robbie was talking about working on the show. And so I sort of thought, do you think that they would let like an outside director? Because I, I knew that they seemed like they were using the same directors a lot. So um, Robbie asked and Ryan said yes. So it was kind of fortunate and um and the game was on what is it about that particular story that that made you want to kind of throw your hat into the ring <laughs> i mean it's sort of like the downfall of truman capote's life not being able to to come up with the next book after in cold blood it's kind of a place that i think all artists find themselves at some point like um you know like following your your last act and him not being able to really get through it and also running into like problems socially with the mm. with the subjects of his actual book which were not like the subjects of in cold blood they were very much alive and in cold blood they were they were gone at that point the two subjects of the book and the victims too so it was quite he was sort of applying that idea to people that were his close friends and it kind of backfired, at least socially. Mm. And whether that contributed to his ultimate downfall or whether it was just his own personal downfall um, is one of the subjects of the story. Well, one of the guest actors is actually your gallerist. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about that. <laughs> we're allowed to say that. Yeah. So you're represented by Vita Schnabel, who is the son of Julian Schnabel, who is another artist filmmaker. And he came in and did... Yeah. Uh, some scenes with you i mean what was that like suddenly directing your gallerist you know because yeah, he is 
an actor or someone that wants to do more acting, right? Yeah, I think Vito is excited about doing more things. And I think that was Ryan's idea. Ryan had met Vito and said, how about Vito playing this part? And so I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, sounds great. <laughs> and so we did. And it, it turned out really great. But definitely wasn't my idea. But it was cool that Ryan thought that up. And how did you meet Vito? And what's it like having a gallerist as someone who makes films and then you're an artist and you have someone that's then representing your work? Yeah, I, I met Vito when he was, he must have been like 16 or something. And he was traveling with his dad back from, I think we were coming from Cannes and there was a layover in an airport. We were kind of gathered there together and I was saying hi to Julian and his son was there. And then later I knew that he was showing art and he was having pop-up galleries while I was making some art mm. more seriously. And I met him at a party, an Oscar party a, f a few years ago. And then he, you showed him your work, yeah. Yeah, I said, oh, you're, you're one of the people on my list of things I want to show you, some works. So I, at the party, on my phone, I was showing him stuff. And uh, we had a show. That's so cool. So as well as making movies and making art, you've also had a venture into musical theatre. And you made a musical called Andy, which was about Andy Warhol, which I want to know everything about. <laughs> what I mean, and did you did you ever meet Andy Warhol? And did you ever meet Truman Capote? These people you're making projects about, have they been people that you actually come across as well? No, I didn't know uh, Truman. Or I never even saw Truman. And I did see Andy walk by me where I worked in advertising for a little bit in New York in the early 80s, it was on Madison Avenue, and he walked by talking to a businessman. So that was the only time I saw him. But yeah, I, the Warhol Project, which we changed the name to Trouble, because the foundation had other ideas for it. They wanted us to change the name. But both Truman and Andy are in that play. And it's about basically the play, which was mounted in Portugal at an organization called Boca, really like more experimental theater. But this is more like a straight ahead musical that we put on. And it was about Andy's outsider status in the 50s and his magician's turn from being outside and then being the head of pop art all in within a couple of years through mm -hmm. the soup can, you know, the image of the soup can through the press and through exposure nationally and internationally as like kind of the most extreme version of pop art a soup can sort of catching hold in the public's consciousness as the one way that they could identify pop art um and all of a sudden he was like the head of the class um so it's about those years and why a musical um i just was enthralled by the form <laughs> it's not it's not easy i think the results were were good yet i would make changes if i was to do it again it's quite singular as well in terms of Andy's own universe. It's quite like he didn't really do musicals. They did actually make a musical at did one they? point that closed really quickly. Um, Paul Morrissey was directing it, and there was actually a musical. It ran for just a week or so. I never knew that. No, I never knew that. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that until recently. But I think, like their films, they allowed the blocking of the musical to be like just whatever the actors <laughs> wanted. 
And I think that it kind of backfired. <laughs> it's just a mess. <laughs> so if you think of like LGBT stories, so, so many people were lost in that era. And I remember hanging out with Maripol, the stylist who styled Madonna and Grace Jones and different people. And she was talking about New York just suddenly feeling completely empty like you know whole blocks of streets were just silent and um where all her friends it used to be do you think when you made a film like milk because milk for me was such a vital incredible mm. and to this day outstanding movie do you feel like it's really urgent and important to make movies about these historic figures that might otherwise be forgotten because once they're in film they're kind of there forever yeah i think i think when i was working on milk in particular that was like a desire to bring to life like a historic gay figure it was 1991 when i first started working on it because oliver stone was doing it and he decided not to direct so i took over and robin williams is going to play harvey and it was like this warner brothers production and it was like this big deal and um i wanted the script to be different and so we made a new script and the studio being such a big film it, they tended to concentrate more on the actual trial of dan white then they really were concentrating on Harvey as this vital force in the gay community. And um, yeah. it really came down to those politics that I think they needed to move on. And I didn't do that one. And that I don't think that one ever happened. But it came back around like in the mid 2000s. Then Lance had a script that was the most, we went ahead and did it. But even back in 1991, uh, Harvey was, it had been... Um, 20 years, 24 years since he had died. And um, so he was already a historic figure. So yeah, that particular one was very um, wanting to preserve this monumental gay historic moment. What was it like working with Robin Williams? Robin Williams is the reason I'm an actor. When I was a kid, I watched his movies and he was the reason I wanted to do what I'm doing now. Total inspiration. What was it like working with him and what, what would he bring to like the daily film set? Um, he was quite serious, like in Good Will Hunting. You know, he, I think he always felt like a, a comedian working in a dramatic form. And so he was a little like cautious because he didn't have the same like mm. maybe bravado that he would have as a comedian on stage. You saw him much more vulnerable as a dramatic artist and worried that he wasn't going to get the right take. So he liked to do a lot of takes just to make sure, you know, whereas mm. Matt Damon in the same film would just do one take and that was fine. Oh, wow. So was there quite a conflict for them then for their process? Um, I don't think it was hard for Matt to do more takes, but it was necessary for, I mean, I think uh, Robin's intensity included like just one more. So you have like, a funny one and one more so you have a sad one and one more so you have like a serious one and a you know alt he was thinking in terms of the editing i think um and i would just do it for him because it wasn't hard and usually it was like seven takes or something but um he was not in his entertainment mode you know when you were shooting except sometimes a crew member would laugh at something raman would say and he would start to like be attracted like uh, moth mm. to a flame, like to mm -hmm. the laughter. And he would start doing more until finally he would be doing a stand-up routine in the middle of the set, you know, and the whole crew laughing. And then finally you'd have to say, okay, 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 we, we have to keep going. So he, well, he did have that, you know, incessant, like going for the laughter side of him. But then meanwhile, we were trying to make something that was less a comedy, 
Although he added a lot of stuff, he added a lot of comic mm-hmm. moments in the in the scenes. You know, like within creating images, I know you've made a book that was called Icons, I think, which had photography that you'd done and it, it includes lots of well-known um, Hollywood stars in their younger years in a way, like Nicole Kidman and different people. But I feel like even through the body of work through your actual movies as well, there's such iconic images of people like, you know, River Phoenix. There's so many people that they all look totally incredible and they're kind of captured forever, you know, like in Amber or something. Mm. Was that something you think about? Yeah, that was just, I was first taking those pictures for Drugstore Cowboy. I was casting in Hollywood and it was a quote unquote, it was an independent film, but it was like a Hollywood, we were in Hollywood. And so a lot of people were coming in. I think John Glover came in and flee from the Chili Peppers. And so we would have these casting sessions where where all these different characters were flying by and we needed Polaroids to re- I think we may have been taping it. I'm not sure, but um, I, I don't think tape existed. It's like 1988. Yeah, tape didn't exist. So we needed something to remember them by. Otherwise, there was no internet. You couldn't go on the internet and grab a photo. So that's why people had 8 by 10s It's like you oh, needed yeah, something like that. So I would take a Polaroid. I had this camera that I had bought and didn't really use that much with polaroid some of the film stocks would come with a negative so you could use the negative for later you could make blow-ups or you could have a a show i thought i could have a show and um so many people were coming through that i didn't want to waste the moment so i was taking a photograph at the end of each session just one usually and yeah through the next few years like probably for the next 10 years i was using that polaroid to just remember people because I would use the Polaroids to cast, you know, assemble casts. You know, if we put this person with that person and see visually how they looked together, um, it was a record to be used mm. for that reason. And then later I had like the book that Twin Palms printed, which was the compilation. But yeah, some great, great people that I met. And it was frozen in time because it was so long ago. It was the 80s. But is it when you're making a film though? Is that something that you consider? Like, do you do you try and create these iconic moments within film, or is it just something that occurs? Well, you storyboard as well, don't you? Um, I did storyboard Drugstore Cowboy, but then I uh, quickly gave up because it's hard. It takes more time. Well, I mean, at least the way I was doing it, it was taking up a lot of time to to follow the storyboards with a 35 millimeter crew. I was doing it on Malanoche, but. It was harder, and so I sort of stopped storyboarding. I would storyboard action sequences or certain sequences, but don't really storyboard like I would like to. Um, When it comes to your art, are you incredibly ambitious? Are there certain museums you want to show in or or collections or you want to be shown alongside certain artists? Are there things, dreams you have still? No, I don't think that I have that specific a a dream with specific artists or or places you just feel compelled to keep making art yeah i mean it's really like a, a sideline i think what is your studio practice what's your studio process i mean do you give yourself certain hours in there and what do you eat if i'm painting i'm just doing it all the time like every day so sort of nine to five and it's very it's very fun i don't know if you've seen the david lynch movie he's painting it's about him painting no and the art life, he calls it the art life. So he's like got his painting, he's got his cigarettes, and he does this all day. And uh, I sort of feel like that when I'm doing 
when I'm in the middle of actually trying to create things that are big, you know, sometimes the, the paintings were taking like a month to do. Wow. And, and if anybody wanted to see your work, Gus, uh, and they can't get into Derek Jarman's cottage, and it's quite difficult <laughs> to see it. Where, where can they see your work apart from online? Is there any collections? Is it in any public collections? Or Vito, Vito has like you know um, records of stuff that people could see, but online, yeah, now you can see it online. Where is your um, studio? Do you do it at home? Just in my garage. In your garage, love that. And is is that nice to have it as a space you can close the door and go back back into the house? Yeah. No, it's good to have. I mean, I think it's good to have it near because then you can just walk into it as opposed to like drive drive there. Yeah. And you live in L.A. So how did you first come to L.A.? And what did L.A.? Because obviously it called you for filmmaking and all of those things. But was there something about Los Angeles itself as a location which has kind of been special for you? Well, it came because of um, trying to to see what I could do in the movie business. I was originally when I was going to school at RISD, the last year I went, they were offering this little program that they were going to take a group of students to Rome because RISD has a presence in Rome. They have like a house in Rome that some of the students for their painting careers, their senior year, they'll do a residency there. So they were offering this little program that Gideon Bachman put together, who was the sort of U.S. journalist located in Rome for all the like cinema publications. And um, he teamed up with my teacher, Marian Marzinski at RISD. And we, a group of us went over there for six weeks in 1975 to visit all the productions that were going on in 75 in Rome. And there were a lot of them. It was like Casanova, Fellini's Casanova. There was Seven Beauties, Lena Wertmuller. Pasolini was finishing Salo. So we visited Pasolini, had lunch with Pasolini. Whoa. Um, so it was, it was amazing time to be there. And I had this opportunity to stay there because then I was finished with school and because there were productions going on and I could have gotten a, a job, say, like working on one of these projects. And um, it just seemed like I, I could do that. And instead I went to London to see what I could do there because of the language barrier. And I just went to London, but London in 1975 was sort of dour <laughs> and uh, there was no work to be had. So I just gave up and went to LA. I thought I should just head there. And I found a job with a comedian, Ken Shapiro. Wow. Well, you should come back to London now, Gus, please. Yeah. Can you try to give it another another <laughs> crack? It's a bit different from 19, mid-1970s. I mean, that's that's why I went to L.A., just to... Because I had been to the, at these other places looking for film jobs, so I just went to L.A. Do you, and do you, do you find, like, there's a real art scene there now? Do you go to a lot of museums and are you out and about? Yeah, I mean, this decade, yes. It's, like, really gotten much more crowded with, with art and artists and galleries. A lot of people seem to have come from New York and started anew here. Yeah. I love LA. I think the art scene, I think the museums there are just world-class, aren't they? I really want to see the Basquiat show. We just spoke to his sisters recently, and I I really want to see that exhibition. I think it's just been extended in um, LA. Oh, right. I haven't seen that. I saw the one in Paris, which is incredible, the 
Warhol Basquiat show. The one in, in LA right now is um, works from the family estate and a lot of them have never been seen before and there's hundreds of works that have never been seen before and they even recreated the bar from New York where he painted like the walls. He did like a big installation for it. Wow. Um, yeah, it looks really cool. So Gus, we ask every guest that comes on Talk Art uh, three very important questions. The first one is if you could do an art heist and you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? Uh... I don't know. I've thought about that. I think I would be too nervous to have like a valuable work of art, like in my house. Um, just, I don't know, the value of it would just, I don't know, just make me nervous. But if I didn't have that fear, I guess, I don't know, something like Moreau or Clay. I know that Robin Williams had in his, his house in San Francisco when I walked in, in the front entryway was a Moreau. It was so beautiful quite a big one no it was like 12 by 20 or something i know that back in 2011 you actually curated like a film series or season i guess they call it um of derek jarman's films for edinburgh i think was it for like a film festival or something and was there one particular jarman film that made the most impact on you yeah my favorite of his is the last of england Ah. yeah so i went to the director's guild was screening it and it was just before we shot drugstore cowboy and I was really nervous because I realized that we should shoot Drugstore Cowboy just like Derek shot Last of England. And I knew we would never be able to do that because just the hamstrings of like, you know, the, you know, what the studio expected me to be doing and so forth. So it was um, incredible to watch that. I've read that you said that with every film you make, even if the budget is large, you like to treat it like an indie. Well, I try to, like, but it's very, very hard. Um, and I haven't really found the method. But I mean, I think what I'm trying to do is recapture something that happened when I shot Malanoche, and I keep failing. Um, and I keep adapting more into like the bigger film project. But I'm really just trying to make the set very small. So there's like three people on the set. And there's not like a huge city of people and teamsters and like caterers and although you know it's quite nice to have all that stuff but um you know i'm always trying to get smaller <laughs> in the article that was written about your season of jarman's films that you'd curated the headline was maddening sexy disorientating and basically saying how relevant his work still is and i loved that idea of disorientation it's such a good one within film somehow because Often it's not really disorientating at all in Hollywood cinema. And I, I think it's really exciting when that can happen. Yeah. Those are hard, also hard to find Derek's films. If I want to see Last of England, it's, you can see it on YouTube. Oh, really? But, I mean, I'm sure that they're they're taken care of by the BFI. But um, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the BFI have a lot in their archive. And they, they did do a, a series of DVDs at one point, but I think they were quite limited, yeah. maybe. I think the run wasn't that big. The the other question we ask every guest on Talk Art is, what is your favorite color? Um green and why green i don't know it's just the color that I th- that i can wear <laughs> <laughs> you look you look hot i look hot and green so that's why i like green <laughs> it's also it's also my middle name is it yeah oh. gus green van gus green van Sant. that's a good name junior junior did you nearly want to use the whole name i at have some used point it and you just thought it's too much you have yeah, on some of the film credits have you that's very cool <laughs> What is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art? And I'd like to ask that about filmmaking, but also about your paintings. Hmm. The best advice? 
I don't know. Usually, usually the best advice is, you know, you actually hear it quite a lot when people just go like, oh, I just don't give a fuck. You know, like when there's all these pressures to do a particular thing or not a particular thing. And then the person will say, you know, I don't think about that or I don't care about that. You know, and you're like, oh, you don't care about that. Like you so you forego that just because it gets in the way it being like, I guess, expectations. So you hear it from all kinds of artists and all kinds of writers and filmmakers, even through history, you know, when they'll be posed a question, isn't that do you have a, rep, you know, responsibility to do this or that? And and they say no. And you're like, oh, my God, they just said no. You know, like Da Vinci saying something like that. And you're like, oh my god. So, does that give you permission to say no to things? Then? Yeah. Is that is that the advice to be bold with saying? I guess so. To be able to say no, yeah. And when when you want to say no, and when it's good to say no. I learned a phrase recently: um, politely decline. I'm just going to politely decline. I think we we always say not for now. Not for now, but we might circle back soon. And it kind of leaves <laughs> it open. Not for now. <laughs> so the next thing we can see that you've made is going to be uh, Capote. Um, I don't think we know when that's going to TX yet, but are, are you excited about that coming out? And what, what was it like having uh, an actor from the UK <laughs> like playing Toby. John? <laughs> <laughs> John I'm more interested in Demi Moore. I love her. What, more than your mate? More than me? <laughs> Thanks. And Chloe Savigny, who I've met at St. John's once in London, and I, I just think wow. she's so great. She had a top hat, yeah. and she's just an amazing human being. I love her. No, everybody was fantastic, and Russell included. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, th- I think um, ex- I'm excited to see, to see how it plays. I'm assuming it'll, it'll play very well. I don't usually have that feeling, and you can also be surprised, you know, like, shouldn't have that feeling but um just i guess we just see like how interested people are in capote is it all um finished editing now yeah it's like officially finished great i cannot wait to see it i spoke to russ a lot during it i've seen a bit and it's very good very proud of it i think it's brilliant well gus thank you so much yeah for thanks you guys hour with us it's been such a privilege to hear you speak about you know your whole life really and particularly how art has influenced everything you've done yeah we're both big admirers of your work and thank you for everything you've done you want any social media gus not really i gave up facebook i mean there's a site but like i think it's been hacked and it's oh. <laughs> and i have an instagram site too but um it's not like I'm doing it every day. Right. Do, you, do you know what it is? Do you want people to follow it? I think it's the real Gus Van Sant. I think it's... I'll, I'll find it and we can tag it. The real Gus Van Sant. Gus Green Van Sant. Junior. It's like has cobwebs and things. <laughs> <laughs> it's a creaky Instagram. Yeah. And you go into an image. <laughs> what, what's next for you? Are you going to do any more exhibitions soon? Um, I don't know. I'm just working on what that is. Well, we look forward to it. And... Uh, For everyone listening, you can find images at TalkArt on Instagram and we will also connect to Gus's Instagram and uh, check out Capote. I think it's part of Ryan Murphy's kind of feud series, which is thrilling and I cannot wait to see it on our screens. So we will be back very soon. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye. 
You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com